Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book. All right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 50. Tess of the D'Urbervilles by Thomas Hardy. She was a poor man's daughter. I want to take you away from this wretched place. It's unworthy of you. An aristocrat's mistress. Why not make the most of life? I was blinded for a while, that's all. That's what all women say. How dare you talk like that? Has it ever struck you that what all women say, some women may all feel? All right. And a gentleman's wife. Which are my hands and which are yours? They're all yours. She was born into a world where they called it an act of seduction, not an act of violence. I was your master once. I shall be so again. If you're any man's wife, you're mine. What she did would shatter her world forever. I shall protect you by every means in my power. Whatever you may or may not have done, I love you. I love you. Tess. A tapestry of color and light. Of breathtaking beauty. Of overwhelming emotion. A story as timely today as the day it was written. To Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast, of course, is books and literature, and in this case, books and literature that we hate. And each month, we take a thorough look at one particular piece of literature that we've both read, and we determine whether it's worthy of its reputation. Spoiler alert, this one is not. Well, if it's negative <sighs> reputation, it is. But if it's positive, it's not. I'm spoiling my thoughts already. Way to bury the lead. This is my time. I am not leading this episode, thankfully. You can thank your lucky stars. Tom is our referee for this particular episode. 
Tom, welcome. Hi, how are you? Um, yeah, so <laughs> this is this is a little. Man, I've I've got on my boxing shorts. <laughs> I've got on my gloves, and they're weighted gloves. These are like Sesti, Sesti, I think. Uh, that's got some metal in them. Oh. And uh, as I said earlier in the chat, I only hit below the belt. So this should be a real interesting 50th episode that we're getting to. Oh, this is lovely. Yeah, 50 episodes <laughs> in, and uh, instead of doing a special topics, we picked a novel, but we picked a novel that uh, we knew we would want to have a guest on for, because it's um, it, as as much as Stella hates it, um, he loves it, and I um, I will not reveal my feelings on it until we've actually gotten to the question we ask ep every episode, which is, is it required reading? But please welcome our guest, um, who is from the Relatively Geeky Network, the Quarterbin Podcast, the Shortbox Showcase, um, and Darkness to Light, Professor Allen. Hello. Wait, Tess? I thought this was an educator summit. <laughs> I thought we were talking about tests. <laughs> hmm. Diction is not my strong point. Uh, well, I guess I'll, I'll try. I'll try to start to struggle along. I've got Shag on the other line. I can get him on here to yeah, any yeah, time. Yeah, that's my joke. That's my joke. <laughs> oh. so I'm glad to be here, Miss Bowman and Mr. Panarese. Thank you. You're welcome. I just wanted to clarify. You two do understand that my graduate degree is in finance. <laughs> I mean, I am a tenured professor, yes, at a large state university, yes, but it's in the College of Business. Like, literature is not my expertise. Was that not communicated properly? That just means you're easy pickings then if you can't properly defend this book that you have multiple copies within your house. That is true. And you swear up and down that it's amazing literature. It so you, you're called on because you're going to defend this work. Well, if, you know, if, if, if any point the discussion becomes a little too literary for me, I may just, <laughs> I may just drop in a bit of business lingo if that's okay. <laughs> okay. And i got to go with my strength. All right. Sounds good. I, I have half a degree in political science, so I can just BS with either of you and I'll be fine. Yeah, I know of all of us not well, Tom's the only one who has the actual pedigree to be on this show. I have a, a Latin major and an architecture, well, a Latin degree and an yeah. architecture degree, so Yeah, my uh my bachelor's is in writing and political science and I minored in English and my master's in is in education. I did marry an English major, so there's that too. Um, I don't, not sure. Okay, I'm sure. Okay, okay. <laughs> so her response to what book are you doing tonight? Test the Derby was why. <laughs> so, oh, oh, what? So speaking of which, um, so this, like I said, uh, we are doing Test of the Derby Reels, and Stella is going to give us a rundown of who Thomas Hardy was. Um, but before we do that, we always ask uh, one another what our history with the book is. So um, we're going to have our guest go first and, and talk about Alan. So, like, uh, what is your history with, with this book since it is, like, one of your favorites? Never heard of it. I meant I meant Return of the Native by Thomas Hardy. Did I not? Not you, the obscure. Not you, the 
No, I, I read this in either 11th or 12th grade, possibly AP English. I mean, it seems like an AP English book. Mm. Uh, I do remember that the paper I wrote about it was about Hardy's use of color, especially in Tess's clothing. Mm. I don't remember anything more than that. But what I do remember was about that reading experience. And it was the first time that I ever experienced that moment that every lover of reading has at times, the feeling that you can't put a book down. Mm. And that had never happened to me before, certainly never with an assigned school book, never with required reading. (laughs) Uh Uh But I stayed up to like three in the morning to see what was going to happen to this strong young woman. I could not stop reading this. Yeah. Very cool. And, and, and I'm, not one, I'm not one to reread much very often. There's just so much stuff that, to me, it's always preferable to consume new material than reread or rewatch things. There are a few exceptions. Sherlock Holmes is one, but Tess is another one. Mm. And there was a stretch where I'd reread it every five or seven years or so. Yeah. Uh, but at this point, I know it's been at least since 20. 10 since I've, I've read it because I've kept track of my reading since then and it was not on there so thank both of you <laughs> for giving me such a good reason to revisit this you're welcome Th- this this does sound like it would be somebody's pick for an AP English course the college yeah, board loves the college board loves British lit especially um, 18th 19th century early 20th and um, uh, now they tend to favor the Brontes um, I, uh, uh, my, as do you, Tom, my, my 19th century, my 19th century novel of choice for my seniors is Frankenstein. So, um, cause it's one of two 19th century English novels that I absolutely love. So, um, the other one's Tess. No, the other one's Dracula. <laughs> Stella, yo, I love Dracula. It's such a great novel. And and thank you again for the adapt the Marvel adaptation. So ah, yes, that yeah, was good. All right. Um, aside from aside from all that, um, we now go over to the we cross the thin line between love and hate, and we are in the hate. Stella, what's your history with this book? Yeah, absolutely. This is, and if anyone. <laughs> whoever you you are that listened to the previous episode with Ethan Frome. And I made a reference to Silver Linings Playbook. And there's a particular scene. I even, I got the audio and, and put it in there mm-hmm. where Bradley Cooper is reading, his character is reading uh, Farewell to Arms and he gets really upset and throws it out the window and then rage quits to his parents about it at like three in the morning. Uh, this is that book for me. <laughs> And I don't remember it being this bad the first time I read it. So it was one of those instances where the first time I read it, I do recall not liking it. I was, I was displeased. But the second time, it was uh, it, it turned into despised or hated. And I was talking – I was yelling uh, at my mother about it one lunch. And, and this is, of course, the present, so I will get back to my, my past with it. And she said, "Do you is this the worst one?" I thought, you know, I can't think of anything worse besides the Awakening. I think that might be the only one that sort of compares. And I don't really want to reread the Awakening in order to see if it actually compares. But I guess we'll see. So this was on my Rory Gilmore's reading list. 
So I was compelled, of course, to read it anyways. And I had known about it. I don't know if it's um, because my mother's nickname is Tess. Um, and like, so I'll call her that or like what what sort of connection it was. But I knew of Tess of the Durbervilles, but I had no idea really what it actually encompassed. And then I finally got to it on Rory Gilmore's reading list. And I will at least agree with Cheapskate that um, it it is one that I wanted to con- I continue to read, mainly because I thought, dear God, please let something positive it happen to, to Tess. Soon. It has to end soon. Yeah, and so it was like I couldn't put it down because I just wanted all of this terrible stuff to be over, and I didn't want to sit on the bad stuff that had happened after a night well, of reading. Spoilers. So I <laughs> pretty happy. Ending. Pretty happy. Yeah. Ending. So there. So there you go. I I can't remember when I read it. I mean, it was it was far enough apart uh, uh, past that um, this was like a refresh of it, but I knew enough and I remembered enough. I was like, oh yeah, here this is. Oh yeah, here we go. This is it. This is it. So that's that's my history. All right. But but I I I just, I just want to clarify. This has not affected your Gilmore Girls fandom, has it? I'm sorry. This has not affected your Gilmore Girls fandom. No, no. I mean, Rory, she's her own individual. She can make her own choices in literature. And so if she's going to read this and then Nietzsche next, then I just have to follow that path and and endure and survive. Gotcha, Nietzsche. Um, Yeah. uh, So for me, um, this is my history with the book. Um, Funny enough, because if if I go back through my actual college transcript and our conversation about, like, you know, what we are are specializing in – um, I actually took a lot of had ended up having to take a lot of British literature courses, and I literally say have to because I always had the ter- the most like worst registration slot, and that was what was available. And in, in the survey course I took, we actually never did any Thomas Hardy. Um, my wife owned a copy of Jude the Obscure at one point or another, but I think it got given it got. Um, you know, purge it was given away. Uh, so yeah, so this was this was my first uh, first exposure to the novel, um, and I'm going to, like I said, save my um, save my opinion until after the synopsis. Although I will tell you that at one point I did text Stella with the phrase, "This man writes about milking cows the way Melville writes about whales." So. Um, so there was so there's a little bit of that because there 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 are typical to this type of literature um, bits and pieces of tedium that I that got so thick at especially toward the in the first half of the novel that um, I ended up going and talking to Cliff for a little bit because I was like I have no idea what the heck just happened in the last ten pages and I'm not going to go reread them so um, but I will uh, I will save my other opinions and stuff for after we get through our context as well and real life history of the author as well as our synopsis and to tell us about Thomas Hardy that'll be Stella yeah and thanks to Cheapskate for compiling the research so I I of course will give him credit where credit is due so Thomas Hardy was born in 1840 in Dorset a rural rural region of southwestern England that was to become the focus of his fiction the child of a builder Hardy was apprenticed at the age of 16 to an architect who lived in the city of Dorchester 
The location would later serve as a, as the model for Hardy's fictional Castor Bridge. Although he gave serious thought to attending university and entering the church, Hardy chose a career in writing instead. He spent nearly a dozen years toiling in obscurity. <laughs> Producing unsuccessful novels and poetry. Although he eventually built a reputation as a successful novelist, Hardy considered himself first and foremost a poet. To him, novels were primarily a means of earning a living. The verses he wrote in the 1860s would emerge in revised form in later volumes, but when none of them achieved immediate publication, Hardy reluctantly turned to prose. His first critical and financial success came in 1874 in Far From Madden. Is it madding or maddening? Far from the maddening crowd? I thought that's what it was. I don't know. And I, far that's from what the I've ma- Well, there you go. That's a knock against uh, Alan there. Oh, I'm not so his first Alan. I'm just going to say that I might have pronounced it wrong as well. It's madding. Okay. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. I'm going to go with him on this. <laughs> okay. That's fine. That's fine. Okay. Okay. His first critical and financial success came in 1874 in... Oh, my gosh. Okay. (sighs) Sorry, Tom. Okay. It's okay. Stella laughed this much through the novel, too. Yeah, I sure did. His first critical and financial success came in 1874 in Far From the Madding Crowd. That novel introduced Hardy's fictional setting of Wessex, which he made famous by its agricultural settings and its distinctive blend of humorous, (laughs) melodramatic, pastoral, and tragic, oh, you don't say, elements. Maybe a little light on the humorous, too. (laughs) Successful novels published in the following years include The Return of the Native in 1878, The Mayor of Casterbridge in 1886, Tess of the Durbervilles in in 1991. (laughs) Okay, maybe 1891. You're killing me, man. You're killing me. Tess of the Durbervilles in 1891, I assume, and Jude the Obscure in 1895. Tess and Jude are generally considered his finest novels. Both works offer deep, sympathetic representations of working class figures. Whew. In powerful, implicitly moralized narratives, Hardy traces these characters' initially hopeful, momentarily ecstatic, but persistently troubled journeys toward eventual deprivation and death. I, oops, spoilers, is what Alan says. Though technically belonging to the 19th century, these novels anticipate the 20th century in regard to the nature and treatment of their subject matter. In many respects, Hardy was trapped in the middle ground between Victorian sensibilities and more modern ones and between tradition and innovation. Hardy was frustrated by the controversy caused by his work, and he finally abandoned novel writing altogether following Jude the Obscure. He spent his career three more decades solely writing poetry, thus depriving the world of more discouragement. <laughs> Thus depriving the world of more discouraging and depressing novels. Mm -hmm. Though today he is remembered more novels, he was an acclaimed poet in his time and was buried in the prestigious Poets' Corner of Westminster Abbey following his death in 1928 at the age of 88. All right. Um, It's funny. Dorset is about an hour and a half away from where my great, 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 great grandfather was from which is a town called Dawlish so there's a tangential connection I don't know um, yeah. I'm not- Thomas Thomas Durberville Panneries yeah. <laughs> please uh, alright um, so that is that is a look at um, 
at who Thomas Hardy was and a little bit of his career. Uh, to take us through the events of Tess the D'Urbervilles is our guest, Alan. Why don't you go ahead and take it away with the plot synopsis? All right. This is Tess of the D'Urbervilles, a pure woman faithfully presented by Thomas Hardy. Phase the first, the maiden, chapter one. On an evening. Oh, no, oh no, 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 you, you, you the, the two true freak servers cannot handle the length of which you are going down here. Stick oh to the script, Joe. You honestly think I can cut out any of this mellifluous prose? Oh, oh, all of a sudden, Stella's not a fan of a 14 hour podcast. How dare you? <laughs> Have you no shame, miss? Have you no shame? <laughs> Pull out the log in your own eyes, sir. This is why I volunteered to edit this episode. <laughs> is it really so you can cut out all of this? No, I was just giving you a break, but now now I see that I made a very, very wise choice. <laughs> okay. A synopsis. Pastor Tringham informs the poor peddler John Derbyfield that he is the lineal descendant of the ancient noble family of the Derbervilles. Meanwhile, Tess, his eldest daughter, joins the other village girls in the Mayday dance, where Tess briefly exchanges glances with a young man. Mr. and Mrs. Derbyfield send Tess to the Derberville mansion to claim kin. In reality, Miss Derberville is no relation to Tess at all. Her husband, Simon Spokes Stokes, simply changed his name to Derberville after he retired. But Tess does not know this fact, and when the lascivious... Alex Durberville, Miss Durberville's son, procures Tess a job tending fowls on the Durberville estate. Tess has no choice but to accept, since Tess blames herself for an accident involving the family's horse, its only means of income. Tess spends several months at this job, resisting Alex's attempt to seduce her. Finally, Alex takes advantage of her in the woods one night after a fair. Tess knows she does not love Alec. She returns home to her family to give birth to Alec's child, whom she names Sorrow, who dies soon after he's born. The local victor, the local vicar, says the child's baptism is allowed, but Christian burial is not due to the nature of his uh, conception and birth. Tess spends a miserable year at home before seeking work and accepts a job as a milkmaid, which evidently did not excite Tom all that much in its detailed telling. But here, Tess enjoys a period of relative contentment. Relative, because it's still early in the novel. She befriends three fellow milkmaids and meets a man named Angel Clare. turns out to be the man from the Mayday dance at the beginning of the novel. Tess and Angel slowly fall in love. They grow closer throughout Tess's time at the dairy. She eventually accepts his proposal of marriage. Still, she is troubled by pangs of conscience and feels she should tell Angel about her past. She writes him a confessional note and slips it under his door, but it slides under the carpet, and Angel never sees it. After their wedding, they confess indiscretions to each other angel tells Tess about an affair he had with an older woman in London and Tess tells angel about her history with Alec 
Tess forgives Angel, but Angel cannot forgive Tess. He gives her some money and boards a ship bound for Brazil, where he thinks he might establish a, uh, a farm. He tells Tess he will try to accept her past, but warns her not to try to join him until he comes for her, if he can bring himself to ever forgive her. Destitute, Tess struggles. She has a difficult time finding work and is forced to take a job at an unpleasant and unprosperous farm. She tries to visit Angel's family, but overhears his brothers discussing Angel's poor marital choice. So she leaves. She hears a wandering preacher speak and is stunned to discover that it's Alec Durberville, who has been converted to Christianity by Angel's father, the Reverend Clare. Alec and Tess are each shaken by their encounter, and Alec appallingly begs Tess never to tempt him again. Soon after, however, he returns to beg Tess to marry him, having turned his back on his newfound religious ways. Tess learns from her sister Liza Lou that her mother is near death, and Tess returns home to care for her. Her mother recovers, but her father unexpectedly dies soon after, because this is Thomas Hardy writing. When the family is evicted from their home, Alec offers help, but Tess refuses to accept, knowing he only wants to obligate her to him again. At last, Angel's love reasserts itself, and he decides to forgive his wife. He leaves Brazil, desperate to find Tess, and does find her in an expensive boarding house, where he tells her he has forgiven her and begs her to take him back. Tess tells him he's come too late. She was unable to resist and went back to Alec Durberville. Angel leaves in a daze, and Tess is heartbroken to the point of madness, torn with despair as she sees her last chance of happiness slip away. She goes upstairs and stabs her tormentor to death. When the landlady finds Alec's body later, she raises an alarm, but Tess has already fled to find Angel. Angel agrees to help her, though he doesn't believe at first she has actually murdered Alec. They hide out in an empty mansion for a few days, then travel further. Eventually, they come to Stonehenge, and Tess uh, sleeps um, there. But when the morning breaks, a search party discovers them. Tess says she is ready and submits willingly to arrest. Sometime thereafter, Angel and Liza Lou meet outside the prison. They watch as a black flag is raised over the prison, signaling Tess's execution. The end. All right. Thank you very much. Okay, so as we always do when we get into the discussions on these, um, we ask the question of did you like the novel um now i will still go last on this but we already do know the um we we know the opinions of the other two people on this show but i would like to know a little bit more about why you like this book and why you don't like this book so alan what is it about this book um you know that that really does um does draw you in and like why do you like this book so much um, it's a heartbreaker in the best way possible. There was a newspaper columnist uh, who once wrote, if it weren't for sports, men would have no emotional lives whatsoever. 
Uh, for me, if it weren't for sports and Thomas Hardy novels, perhaps I would have no emotional life whatsoever. Um, it's just, it just, it, uh, it, it's a, it's a heartbreaker in the best way possible. Okay. Stella. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know that I don't like it and, uh, I could go on and on about all the reasons I will at least give credit to Thomas Hardy. I do think that it is beautifully written. Uh, I do actually like all the, I guess, sides that he takes. I, I feel like they're not as bad as Moby Dick, but that is a, is a funny text that, that Tom did send me. Um, and how nature is portrayed, which I think is, is huge anyways. I, I think there's a lot of symbolism there, and it's almost a character in itself. And it's obvi- it is obviously engaging, at least I, I think on my part and, and definitely Alan's part, we were obviously engaged, but for different reasons to like keep reading and, and see the fulfillment of this, no- this novel. But for me, and this is the only, the only Hardy novel that I've read, and just from that experience, I just don't think I would like to dive into another one because Alan says it's heartbreaking, but it's almost like let us take this character – who, you know, just looking at her seems like a moral, upright character. And, and you know, you might be listening to this and you listen to Jane Eyre. Like, this novel should be in my wheelhouse. This is totally a Stella type of novel. And Tess is totally a, a Stella type of character. But they take her and then it's just like he beats her down and anything bad that could potentially happen to her does. And, and she's given these moments of escape from what has happened to her and because of her moral code and obligation to herself or to her family uh, she feels like there's a certain way that she has to behave or what she has to do and that unfortunately she is not rewarded for that at all and uh, she's beaten down even more and and in a sense perhaps that's you know the the way the the world works you know a liar may get a better job than someone telling the truth or something like that. So I guess it's realistic, but it's just, it's really hard for me to read um, a potentially strong female character that is similar to Jane Eyre in, in certain ways, just constantly beaten down. And in the end, I mean, oh, you know, I guess it's kind of a happy ending in the sense of like, she was reunited with Angel and then her suffering was put at an end. But my gosh, just just the way all, everything that she had endured and went through, it's just really rough. So it's more the subject matter and beating down on the character that I really is the reason why I really despise it. But I, I will say that it is really well written. I, I won't uh, say that it's garbage. So th- those are the main reasons why I do not like this novel. All right. Um, I fall somewhere in the middle. Um, I had had the back end of the book gone as just slowly as the first, you know, 100 to 150 pages went to me. I would have just been like, chuck this out the window and put it on the pile of Jane Austen novels that I never want to read again. Um, Because honestly, like Jane Austen novels, like... And in a lot of the 19th century things, lit novels that I've read from England, a lot of it is like, why am I supposed to care about these people? Because I don't. And I was starting to get that sense. But then, like, 
I will say that it got for me it got better as it went on because I did get more invested on in her and who she was and and what was happening and it wasn't because she was in so much pain it was more or less it was just um, it was it was intriguing to me and it was also very very well written um by the end, I think when I was talking to Stella the other day, I said that the ending was – I was about 50 percent satisfied with the ending. Um, I kind of knew that she was not going to survive the novel. It just – the conventions of the day just suggested that she would not be able to not answer – if she had to answer for her crimes, she, um, she was going to answer them. And, and the execution scene did not – you know, or as it was – did not surprise me. But man, I was satisfied by the fact that she stabbed Alec to death. I wanted him to die so bad. Um, and uh, yeah, I was just at one point I, te- I texted her. I was like, I want him to die or something like that. And she was like, she's like, I won't spoil the rest of it for you. And when I found out she had she had done it, I was like, yeah. And I was hoping that I was hoping that her and Angel would like run away and it'd be like the end of the Shawshank Redemption, where like you know they're on a beach somewhere in Mexico or whatever. But alas, that was not to be. Mean- there is a chance, you know, he, he could have ended up back in Brazil, mm-hmm. you know, if they'd been able to, you know, mm-hmm. get to a port, get it. You know, yeah. there, there was potentially an escape. I, I will tell you that um, I wasn't supposed to laugh out loud, but he's they're escaping, and she's like, you know, they, they're running through the north of England at this point, or wherever wherever Stonehenge is, and they're he's, she's describing like a pillar, wherever they're leaning against. He's got this flower description, and I, I said out loud, like, oh, what is this, like Stonehenge? And then like two paragraphs later, it's Stonehenge, and I like guffawed at that. I was like, you've got to be freaking kidding me, but. Um, but no, so I'm kind of neutral. It's it's not. I don't think this is something I would pick up again. Um, and and I think at the very least, all three of us agree on how well written it is, um, because he he really does have a gift for like really vivid prose, and I could really appreciate it. But um, I didn't outright hate it on the level that I usually reserve for these sorts of, um, this era of, of novels. So. See, well, that's something, Tom, that's yeah, something. So I'm, I'm more in the neutral corner here. Um, so, all right. So let's get into the actual discussion of the book. Um, and, uh, the first, no, the first question we had was how, how does the novel begin? And does Hardy use a natural or seemingly invented device to start the book? Uh, for me, I don't, well, Great Scott. I mean, this whole thing could have been avoided if the parson had not gone up to John Derbyfield multiple times, I suppose, and and said, sir, and then John, because that's what carries on the entire rest of the novel. And that was one of the truest things that Angel says, I think, after Tess confessed on the wedding night that um, if only the parson hadn't told your father that because all of this stuff could have been avoided. I feel like it... um, it, it certainly is the, a powerful beginning, but you only recognize how powerful it is once you start to gain speed and traction in the novel because you don't recognize the importance of this uh, ancestry and the name switch, but everything is tied and connected to it. So for me, I don't know that it's necessarily natural because I think that uh, he it had to happen this particular way. Uh, perhaps the meeting of the two of them and that it wasn't the first time that they were meeting, but it had been multiple interactions. And that's why John finally stopped and asked, why do you call me, sir? I'm just this lowly uh, cow. I don't know what he is, but he's some sort of uh, herdsman. And... Um, 
and the parson explains. Mm-hmm. So that might be natural that it's not been the first time. But Hardy, I think, is intentional about where I'm starting off with this thing. You don't recognize what it is. Perhaps it's the uh, Chekhov's gun. I don't know if that uh, applies. Um, but I think that in that case, I, I feel like it is invented. It's a device that that will fuel the rest of the novel and all the actions afterwards. Yeah, I I mean it does start the the first paragraph is the inciting incident. Yeah. You know, it's right there. There's no there's no background, there's no foreword. There's it just you know it starts right there, and you know it's not surprising that it's you know it starts with a with a mistake made by a member of the establishment, you know, re- religious establishment. Also in this case, you know, it's a it's a a mistake that is communicated and has horrible consequences. Uh, we see early on that the, the embarrassing family that Tess comes from. Well, we've all been embarrassed by our drunk parent before. Uh, you don't have to admit that, but um, I think we could understand that. Um, we see the village engage in sort of this innocent, uh, innocent ritual early on. And in a sense, we don't really meet, but we see the, the that primary love interest that sort of – sort of all there mm-hmm. is her mother like <clears throat> doesn't her mother kind of push this idea of her getting um kind of meeting the people like her her mother seems to be pretty fixated on the status that being of the durbervilles will bring um is is that a character trait of hers I, or I, is that just think, a spurred on by this yeah i think the that yeah that that concept of claiming kin mm-hmm. that she's encouraged to do, I assume there would be some financial benefit that they're looking for with that as much as status. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's – yeah, it's never for the benefit of – I suppose it's for the benefit of the family, but it's never for Tess's benefit. Tess is always the agent of, of all these designs. Mm-hmm. She almost reminds me of Mrs. Bennett. In Pride and Prejudice, like she seems very similar to that. And even when, I mean, she's also duplicitous. I, I guess she's trying to help Tess out by saying, you know, don't tell Angel. And then after it happened, I told you not to tell him and and went on about It's like, man, woman, where where are your feelings for your daughter and what she had gone through? So it's it's hard for me to empathize with that particular character. I mean, the, the parents in general mm-hmm. are a bit... Uh, they're not the ones I think you're going to turn to with your emotions in this particular novel. She does have some people who 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 she can, re- to a certain extent, rely on, or at least are not as always out to get her or get something out of this. Um, yeah. So it's not like she's got uh, the world is against her here, but yeah, it is. She is in a tough situation where her parents are. Well, they're not the Thernardiers, but it's it's that sort of like they they see they see the opportunities, so they're they're very opportunistic. Um, I had wondered, um, and and I just referenced Les Misérables, and 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 it made me think of, um, although that has a much longer (laughs) that has a much longer introduction before you actually get to um, Cosette. But um, I this the intro to this and the idea that you are somehow related to these rich people and we're gonna and and the idea that you should go claim kin and be kind of lifted up by them reminded me a little bit of Great Expectations 
and um, you know that or or and and some other there are other novels that use that convention of a of a missing heir to something or whatever and that like you know this person who was just very poor now has this opportunity to to make something of themselves and I was wondering if, if Hardy was um, I don't know subverting that trope or something uh, am I off on my analysis of this or am I am I thinking that like he is being a little satirical and he's certainly not a fan of nobility or aristocracy mm-hmm. um, so uh, certainly possible yeah. Yeah, I feel like if if uh, Hardy were inserting himself as a character at all, it might subtly be Angel because Angel has this grievance against families with old names anyways, like ancestry. So I, I feel like because, I don't know, like literally what's in a name kind of thing that just because you are related to these people, does that mean anything about who you are or, or what you can get? So uh, potentially, I think that's, certainly possible i think there's a lot of criticism on just the i mean that that was one of my questions on sort of the class system and everything and and the rise of the middle class and then what does it look like to be lower or high in this novel as well so i i wouldn't put it past him i i feel like he might be on to something all right well uh we'll come back to that in a little we'll come back to that in a little i think we we might want to get into um the questions that we have about the characters and and some of the events too just to kind of um, you know, shed a little more light on, especially on Tess, because she is our main character, and she really does just um, to the point where, as the novel gets on and on, it's like this relentless chain of events of of tragedy and misfortune that happens to her, and um, uh, you know, like is is she a is she a helpless victim? Is she a victim of society? A victim of her parents? A victim of the class structure? Uh, does she have agency in any of this regard? Is she actually strong? Is she weak? Like, you know, what do we make of of this woman who is our protagonist? Yeah, well, I think uh, like Angel, I think I fell in love with Tess at first sight. Mm-hmm. Age 16, 17, whatever. I just remember being impressed by her strength of character. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see this or her unwillingness to take the help, financial help. Uh, from the Claire's, and then, like you said, Tom, to, to finally to kill her tormentor, and then the power of accepting the consequences of her actions. She's there at Stonehenge, and the the cops are coming, and she just says, "I am ready." And you know, to me, to the to the extent that she can have agency. Uh, uh, that she can have power, that she can have control, and she has very little of it. But she does at time manage to wrestle those things away. And you know, I mean, our lives are are a result of our the consequences of our own choices and the choices of others, people near to us, people distant, uh, uh, distant from us. You know, we have. Little control over what happens to us, but we have far more control about how we react to what happens to us. And I, I love those moments when Tess does grab back the power, the control, the agency that society, her time, her gender, all that that that, that she has de- uh, denied the power and the control and the agency for, for all of those reasons. But I, I love it when she is able to 
at a few moments and a few times wrestle that mm. back. Yeah, I and and I noticed even in, in, in some of the smaller things like her her at work as, as much as I joked about the milking cows stuff there is a sense of purpose in her and that even though she, she she does have her woe is me moments but there's a sense of purpose in, in life and that she is she works very hard and not only works very hard but like you know really just try to make something of herself in spite of what has been happening to her um, and I think that is that is a character strength as as well. And uh, and yeah, I, I, I admired the fact that she did not like going back to the man who was just absolutely awful to her. Um, and we'll get to him in a little bit. I mean, I like the fact that she, you know, she 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 probably was coerced if not more subtly than originally. And um, and then she finally turned around and like killed the guy. And I was very happy about that. So like, and, and that's where it's accepting her fate. Well, Stella, what do you think? You know? Yeah, no, I, I, and I'm pretty sure I put this question. It's just interesting. You know, when is she strong? When is she weak? And I feel like if you look at her on paper, um, with all the stuff that happens, you have to see her reactions to it and her reactions to all these things that happen. I feel like portray her as a really strong character. Mm -hmm. Um, both, I, I feel like emotionally though, there are some points obviously, which, you know, anyone would be caving under that or bowing really under that pressure. Um, but morally, just making good decisions. You know, she felt really bad about that horse dying. It it was possibly her fault, though, really, if we go all the way back, it was really her father's fault who had been drunk and couldn't make the de delivery. So she had to do it late at night and she fell asleep. So it's all it's everything is compounded. Um, and then she felt a moral obligation to, to help her family. But after the assault, she leaves the Durberville. So she doesn't stick there. She, she sticks up for herself and she doesn't stay there. She sticks up for herself and she leaves. Um, she doesn't seem like she's naturally inclined towards hard work, but we see her multiple times actually out there in the fields and she stops and, and breastfeeds and then goes back to work. Uh, she's pretty good at the cows and, and, and milking. And, and we get a sense that some cows are, they know, you know, that she's there. Um, she tries so many times to not get <laughs> attached to Angel or get married. And this almost just harkens back. And I feel like it's probably not too far-fetched because there are classics references in this novel, which of course I'm always going to get. There's this huge one paragraph that like, oh, I think it's actually near the sexual assault that it was talking about all these. I'm like, these are really terrible similes that you're using right now, Thomas. Um, but Dido, Dido and the Aeneid had sworn, she's like, I'll never love again, never get attached again after her beloved husband gets murdered. And then, of course, you know, the gods, fates intervene and she falls, falls with quotation marks, falls in love with Aeneid. And, and, of course, bad things happen. So it almost reminds me of that, that she, she went back on her vow and fell in love with Angel and then all these things. But she tries so hard. So if only those moments she's weak, that she, like, gives into that or after so much pressure from Alex, she finally agrees to be with him again with quotation marks. And then 
um, snapping. So that's like the one time like her moral code doesn't really stand up. And again, you know, it's it's hard to really blame her with with all of this stuff that uh, has been going on. So it's hard for me to c- consider her a weak character, though. There are moments that I could say like, oh, yes, you know, she's just pushed too far. She couldn't take it as much. But gosh, what would you do in that situation? But I would say, I mean, honestly, gosh, you know, it's coming from a woman um, on the podcast. But God, you know, you said about is it society? Is it what, what, what? You know, all of these seem to come from the men. Mm hmm. Like everything that happens to her is, is is because of a man doing what he should not have been doing or was not respectful or empathetic or not having a double standard and being a hypocrite um, or just, yeah, I guess resting on his laurel. So I almost blame the male half of society for everything that went uh, down for poor Tess. The only good person happened to be the dairy farmer. I feel like he was a pretty good man. Um, maybe Reverend Claire. Um, maybe. I don't know. But anyways, uh, so yes, we can blame society, but a lot of it was just like, what What are these? Well, all of those classics. <clears throat> Could you say it one more time? I said that all of those classics references went right over my head. I didn't get any of that, so I just wanted to point out that interest <laughs> equals principle times right times time. Okay, well, just, just know so I that feel like I, 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 I'm centered again. Okay, just know that that whole scene. I think there's the lead up of different, um, like such and such encountering so and so in the woods. They're all rapes that happened in classical literature and Greek Mm. mythology and things. So it's if you didn't catch what was happening and there is even a question that I have about the subtlety of the sexual assault. um, And but you were you like knew if you were a classics nerd, you're like, oh, boy, this is not going where it should be going. So but we'll talk about that. Yeah, yeah, I do. But I, I wanted to I mean. The, the men are are awful and I want to talk about them especially the two that we uh, the two principal ones that we see Alec uh, Durberville and Angel Claire um, you know you had mentioned uh, you guys had mentioned discuss the differences between them but I think we have to um, we, we really should put them side by side because they are the two men who are romantically involved in some way, shape, or form. Um, and I use that in the general sense because I don't think um, the I don't find anything romantic in uh, what Alec does to Tess. But um, I don't know. Like I'm seeing cruelty in one of them, and I'm seeing um, like a. It's not even virtue because he's he's so hypocritical when he when he tells her he can't be with her when Alec tells her he can't be with her, you know, like where he basically he basically won't forgive her for the deceit and um, and and, you know, blows her off and goes to Brazil and um, and then leaves her destitute. You know, that's that's cruel, but it's a cruel on a on another um on a different sort of level, um, you know, the, neither of them treat her entirely great. Although at the end, Alec is probably the one who is the most redeemable in terms of that, because of the fact that he he turns around, comes back, and then after she kills Alec, is um, is going to help her get away, and then we end with him and Tess's sister. 
Um, so we have, we get it's implied that he is going to. Um, I think that he's going to marry Tessa's sister or take just take care of Tessa's sister. I can't remember exactly what it was, but um, but so there's possibly some good in him, um, as opposed to Alex Alec, who's just downright awful. And the um, the the conversion to Christianity didn't didn't sell me in a second. I'm like, no, you you're going to turn around and just be as awful as you were just on another level. And we saw it. So what did you guys think? Well, I, th- I think, uh, I think Stella's analysis is right in that. I mean, these are two very imperfect males, mm-hmm. uh, imperfect in very different ways. Uh, like, like you were saying, Stella, uh, before I answer this, because I think there is some sort of connection to them in religion. Alan, would you say that Al, uh, Angel is probably agnostic at this point? Probably, yeah. Okay. I've, you know, I feel like to a certain extent we've got some prodigal sons on our mm-hmm. hands, but in like various oh, degrees right. of different, where yeah, in their ways. journeys we are. Um, and whether it's in terms of, you know, religion – literally coming back to their fathers or coming back to Tess. I feel like we're just seeing this. These people are really attached to something or someone, and then they're leaving for a time, and then they're they're coming back. Um, With Alec, uh, he's, you know, right from the beginning, he's a a smarmy. Is that what it is? Swarmy or smarmy? is a good way to put it, yeah. Smarmy. He's a smarmy gentleman. Um, And what surprises me, though, is that after the the assault, he still shows attention to Tess. So it wasn't like a one and done. Like there seems to be, and it's potentially just um, a perverted form of it. But I feel like he does actually care for Tess. And he even makes some sort of illusion, like if you were to become pregnant, let me know. Um, or some sort of, you know, distress like that. It was, it was subtly hinted at. Um, and then coming back, but you know, the, the, the religion there, and it's interesting cause he physically accosted the Reverend Claire and, but that was like a huge wake up call for him. And it seems like he's a fire and brimstone type of preacher. So some people might be turned off, but it, it's like, what would it be in that parable? Um, maybe the ones, the seeds that are, they're dropped on the on the soil, but they don't go in. Is that the correct one, Alan? Or they spr- they spring up quickly and then are burned out. Yeah. So he doesn't have as strong a foundation, and so that's why he's like once Tess is back in there, uh, in the picture, he just he gravitates towards her right away. So it's like he had that potential, um, and then uh, it turned away. So I feel like there are glimpses of the good man that Alec could be, but it's, it's, it just doesn't fully get there. He even mourns for his mother, which was shocking given the first mm-hmm. scene that you see between the two of them. And, and he's not very kind towards her, but then it seems genuine his, his mourning of her once we find him later on in the story. And with Claire, he, he's, he's disappointing. I think for readers because we have such high expectations for him, he seems like a gentle man. Um, he's loving, and um, and then yeah, this whole thing just sort of falls in on itself. Like, oh, he's got a fault, and it was a bit 
uh, treacherous of him to wait until after the wedding night, even though Tess wanted to talk about their faults beforehand. But then you're like, oh, it'll be okay because now, you know, Tess, they're on equal footing and even she thinks that and then it, it doesn't happen. And I don't know if there's perhaps there's that disconnect because in a way he's he's questioned. He doesn't know if he is agnostic. And so because he's lost that. He doesn't have that forgiveness in his heart that he probably was was mm-hmm. raised up with. Though later on, I do get confused with him a bit because he does say, you know, I do forgive you and you're clearly the victim in all of this. Like he recognizes that, but he feels like um, she's someone else. It's it's not the test that he he grew to love. And so I think because maybe he's lost the core of his religion, I think it's harder for him to forgive and, and grant that grace and then of course he goes off to brazil and then he comes back to test so i think there's that that bit of a prodigal as well um so but yeah so gosh did i analyze them both successfully oh, yeah. <laughs> um i feel like they're they're similar honestly they're more similar than you would expect them to be it's just that you grow you really mm-hmm. quickly grow to despise alec but there are glimmers of hope i think with him and you love claire and and that's what angel and that's why it's such a heavy fall when all of that stuff happens and you're you're just so frustrated so it's just like two sides of the coin and they both have potential like be you know be the man that Tess feels like you could be. Well, Tess didn't really ever love Alec, but yeah, I think those are my fifty cents on, on there. Yeah. I, I don't see anything redemptive in Alec. I mean, I see him as even after he comes back, I see him as essentially pursuing her again and wearing her down to the point where he lures her in and captures her, and she's trapped when she kill when when he and she she's resigned herself to. Um, being with him because he basically, you know, she's like, I have no other choice. And mm. um, she is, she definitely feels trapped. And then Angel becomes that, you know, pun intended, kind of that, that hope, you know, the other guy's name is Angel of, of all things. Um, and, uh, and that, you know, spurs, that spurs her on to, to finally do in the bastard. And I'm like, good. But with Angel, but with Angel, I was equally ticked. Well, I was I was pretty pissed off at the at the scene where he he basically leaves her, and the hypocrisy. Now, I wasn't surprised at that because you know even in the 21st century there is this. Um, I could see this happening between two people, um, and and the the reaction of the man is something that um, you know. For what it's worth, it's a pretty realistic reaction. I'm not saying it's right, but it's something that I could definitely see even today. You know, this idea of, um, I guess, I guess, slut shaming is the effective phrase here. You know, the idea of like, you know, um, that that you know, this all happened, and I guess the the deceit is the thing that is really the sticking point for him. But at the same time, he is so like, um, I'm just like. Do you not see how much she has suffered and how much she is suffering, you know, et cetera? 
Now, I guess I, I want to put a pin in that because I do want to get back to Alec and the, the sexual assault, which I, like I said, I had to go look up the Cliff's notes for the first part of the novel, first phase, because I, I was really like, there were whole points of the book would go by in the first half of the book where I had no idea what the heck was going on. And um, so I was like, all right, I'm going to go talk to Cliff and I'm going to do what I usually do. So I started taking some notes and then I kind of like started to understand, okay, everything. And then all of a sudden they see he rapes her. I'm like, what? And I actually went and re, re- read that and i was like what i i i didn't get that from the first time so please why like why be this subtle why you know aside from the 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 allusions that you just made stella to um, classical mythology alan i i wonder if it was yeah i wonder if it was part you know victorian Hmm. um you know uh, 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 uh concepts of, of not being explicit at all. I also wonder if the if the intention was to make it cloudy, to make it doubtful. I mean even again do, doing some doing some research for uh, for this for this podcast, you know, you read analysis and and in some cases, you know, it's referred to as the questionable rape or the questionable assault. It 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 is not clear to what extent mm-hmm. what what exactly happened in terms of consent if there is any way we can even address that 140 years ago or whatever this this, this would be to, to, to even try to lay our modern views of that on 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 top of it but i i think it, it there's a very good chance that it was intended to be it was intended to leave a re- to leave doubts in the reader's mind as to exactly what happened. I would agree with that. I think once we get into the question of nature, I think that also plays a part, um, especially with just how everything is is laid out. Yeah, I just don't know. Like, I would not be able to, I think, pinpoint, you know, what literature is doing at the time. Um, what other works may have tackled such a thing and and how explicit it may have been when I was reading it. And I feel like the the same thing happened both times I had to do a wait what situation and then reread. And I was like, yeah, that did happen. And it just reminds me of, you know, put it, put someone in a, a dorm room who's sleeping or who has been given a roofie or something. And like, this has happened because she's, she's sleeping. And it, it's, what's really startling is that it, there's such a disconnect or, uh, shoot, what's it called when two chords are played that dissonance? There's a dissonance with how beautiful it is, like with the nature and everything. And then this, this horrible thing happens afterwards. And so I think you are in this fog of what actually happened, what's going on here, because it seems like, oh, it could, could that be? It's, it's written romantically. I think I even texted tom that it's written romantically Mm -hmm. until you get underneath and you're like wow this is actually really bad and then later on when she has the discussion with alec which i think was a couple weeks later she was even saying like do you not listen when someone says so and so and and he's saying well women always do that but i mean the and i'm like oh my gosh this is like we're reading it in the 21st century right now with with this discussion of 
a woman's no actually means yes kind of situation. So I feel like it is foggy in the moment, but everything becomes clearer uh, later on. Um, and perhaps she, given when we now live, perhaps her behavior is a bit odd for us. Like we would expect her to be behaving in a different manner uh, than she is, which I think is, again, potentially a point in her favor as being a strong character that she's not. Well, I don't want to be disrespectful because obviously victims of assault, they're all going to act in a particular way. But the, the fact that she's having a conversation with her attacker is at the very least astounding that she's able to do that. So I do agree with with Alan, but I think that the fog is is the fog cover slowly rolls away once you progress from that particular scene. Okay. And this, I, 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 me, uh, I did want to go back and talk about angels sure. for a second because I found this found this quote um, from a. a, a an analysis online. I, I didn't get the writer, but this was from the Literary Hub website. I thought this was powerful. They said, uh, I consider Hardy one of my favorite writers and count Tess among those most beloved to me each time I weep for Tess Derbyfield because her incandescent goodness finds no sanctuary in Hardy's indifferent universe. And it's all because she has the misfortune to become entangled with one despicable and you think she's going to say Alec with the despicable angel Claire, mm. you know, that this reviewer or this you know, an analyst is putting them on equal footings of despicability. Mm. Mm-hmm. I can see that. Like the point I was making earlier that, you know, he he doesn't physically assault her, but he he leaves her just as in, in just as dire straits as she was when Alec when with what Alec did, even worse, actually, if you think about it. I mean, at least mm-hmm. when it came to, um, we'll get to the baby in a second, but like, you know, Alec, uh, she was mm-hmm. at home and then she found a good job in a dairy and that's where she met Angel, obviously. And after Angel, um, she's like completely uh, destitute, like it's even worse uh, and so he did no favors for her because it's also like all the rumors about her, this marriage and everything like that. Although, like I said, he's on a bit of an upswing at the end. Um, although I don't now I don't know, is the cycle going to repeat itself with his with her sister? Mm-hmm. You know, although apparently she's a lot more um, she's she's a lot better. I don't know if the, that's the best way to put it. She's yeah, untainted. yeah, yeah. Or she's still a maiden, yeah, which I guess. is, I mean, it's a terrible way to, to put that. And it's like, you know, in our modern sensibility, it's like, who cares? But at the same time, in the con- in the conventions of the day, it it it, it is a plus. Um, but yes, but Tess has Alex's baby. Uh, sorry, Alex's baby, and the baby doesn't even survive. I mean, what's the, so? What's the mm-hmm. point? Well, like, why does Hardy have? Is Hardy just getting having her get pregnant and having a baby that dies for the? for the sake of it i mean was there a, was there a point other than it's convenient for the plot for the baby to not be there for three quarters of the novel um you know what do you guys think alan would you say that i'm gonna 
ask a follow-up question, I guess, for this. <laughs> Would you say that this is um, like a huge religious issue? Would that be the primary reason why Tom – and I actually don't know Hardy's – well, actually at the beginning of the bio, it said that he considered being a um, – a pastor. So do you feel like that's perhaps the point of it? Um, because it does get, I mean, I would say the crux of that whole issue is once the baby dies, this discussion about right. souls. What's and the, I don't know if there's maybe a connection with Tess. Like, does Tess feel like her soul is also dirtied? And, and so question, question, questioning what, what will happen to the baby and burial is also questioning what will happen to her because of all the things that She's at, what do you think about that, Alan? Yeah, I, I, I do think it gives uh, gives Hardy a chance to explore some of that religious, really direct, direct religious content. Not even, you know, poking at you know, prodigal son analogies or, th- or things like that, but really to get at very particular baptism and and burial. You know, these very very specific uh, religious. Uh, re- religious events, so I, I certainly think that's that's part of what he's getting at. I think also, I miss some of the most compelling and heartbreaking to me dramatic moments of the early part of the book is the the baptism and the burial and the conversation with the uh, with the with the local uh, parson. You know, I think all those are dramatic uh, dramatic literary moments um, as well. Um, I wonder if, from a practical, again, from a from the Hardy viewpoint, if um, having the baby is a, a a way of confirming that there was a, a, a sexual interaction. Mm. Uh, I, mean, I think that's that that's part of that, and I think I think Tom is also uh, right there, and, and that the, the the death of the baby, in addition to giving Tess a secret. Uh, a very dramatic, uh, dramatic secret. Um, uh, it gives her a heartbreak, mm-hmm. uh, but it does give her a chance to move into the second half of the novel, into a further life uh, without the responsibilities of 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 motherhood. And I think you know, I think there's a very practical aspect of her of her freedom uh, because of that. But but to me, those are some just some compelling scenes. Mm-hmm. So kind of getting with that and, and having her go into the next part of the novel, just moving down our questions here. Um, how do nature and fate play a role in this novel? Golly. Uh, yeah, I feel like I, I'll at least tackle the nature. I think I might have to think a bit more about fate, but honestly, I I think we joked about it already when Alan was kicked off of Skype and I was thinking, well, a lot of these things, certainly, <laughs> it, it does play a role for sure. Like the, just the fact that Alec reappears and she's walking by uh, to visit the parents, you know, those little things um, or the parents doing a swap of, of who ends up getting killed. Um, or dying, mm-hmm. I should say, since it wasn't a murder from from the sickness and and all the getting kicked out and everything. I uh, with nature, which I've been thinking a lot about this because there are so many sec- sections where seasons or nature he just expounds upon them, <clears throat> and I feel like there's there's definitely a purpose for it besides it being um, pastoral is, is one of his go tos. Like Virgil, there's your other classics reference for the day, folks. Uh, nature, I think, is a character 
And at times, I would say oftentimes, it's not a good character. Um, I was looking online and, and someone called it a villain. And I was like, I guess we could kind of consider it a villain. Just, I mean, if you think about the assault scene, the fact that it, it, where she is in that section, nature basically is, is shading her in. Um, it doesn't protect her. It isolates her from the rest of the world, which allows Alec to do what he does. She's uh, a slave to the seasons and to nature because she can only get particular jobs at particular seasons. And then she gets kicked off and has to find somewhere else to go. So I feel like nature is always with Tess and it, it deeply affects. Yeah, I didn't it deeply affects her journey and the things that that she comes upon. So perhaps, you know, nature and fate do work hand in hand just because nature pushes her off the farm. She's moving the direction that she's moving. Fate comes in. Oh, look who's here. Who look who's come back sort of situation or just the fact that it was summer. They needed uh, a milker. She goes there. Look who's there. Angel. So I feel like they work hand in hand. But nature, for sure, I think, is another character in this novel. Alan? Uh, that's too literary for me. Uh, <laughs> With disgust. Uh, assets equals liabilities plus owner's equity. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously there's a there's an aspect of the turning of the seasons. And, and you know, there's a, you know, it speaks to cyclical nature. You know, there are certainly uh, uh, aspects of that. Um, but but uh, beyond that... Uh, I will uh, uh, ascend to everything Stella said. <laughs> uh, yeah, the yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of in agreement with you there as well. Um, I was thinking a little bit about fate. I was also thinking a little bit about um, another trope of of 19th century novels tends to be that like you know everybody and this this tends to be this to this day. Um, everybody like seems to have this weird coincidence where they're all somehow connected with one another, even though they're they shouldn't be you know we see this in in the way that alec and and angel and tess are throughout the novel just by you know angel was the guy she was staring at at the at the dan you know like all those little things and stuff like that so they're i think that yes i i i i think when angel's father is the means yeah. of alec having a religious conversion that is yeah yeah that is really nodding yeah together tying everything up very yeah and, and that's why i thought for a second it was a bit of a um uh him thumbing his nose at the conventions of novels of this time by being that just kind of absurd with them you know just like you know going full in and being like all right you want coincidences here are some coincidences you know and that sort of thing um and and then i wonder if that actually does introduce the idea of fate like you know these all people are all connected so it was bound to happen sooner or later type of thing which is a much more simple <laughs> sounding answer than the really eloquent one stella just gave um but yeah i just wonder because the the rebuke of 19th century literary tropes such as those in say charles dickens and like i said i mentioned great expectations earlier i wonder if that also ties into the question we have here how is the novel an indictment of the class system of english society near the end of the 19th century you know we we said in a in 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 a couple of ways angel is probably the most hardy like character the little bit that we know about about hardy um, and I would say that that Alec, that Angel's views of 
fallen aristocracy of old families of old money. Uh, his his absolute disdain for that is is uh, most likely reflective of of Hardy's mm-hmm. views as well. I mean, again, all of Tessa's problems arise from being told, actually mistakenly, as it turns out, mistakenly being told that she is part of the aristocracy. Yeah. I was the one to do this, and I was actually looking up 19th century uh, class system and seeing what it was like, and uh, clearly I've forgotten. I should have done it more recently, because I think I did on Monday, and then all these things happened. It's, It's interesting just to see the difference between people like the Derby Fields versus the Der, the fake Derbervilles versus the dairy farmers. And um, I feel like the Derby Fields are on the low end of middle class, if not low class. And part of that, oh, oh, I was about to say something offensive. I wonder if I can do it. I don't want to be that person that says this sort of thing, but honestly, it doesn't seem like John works very hard. But so I don't know if he's to blame for the low class system, but maybe I'm feeding into that um, that uh, societal uh, issue that we have, where if people can't get themselves out of a situation, it must be their fault. So that could be what I just did. That's why I hesitated to say. Well, I mean, there um, the, both things can hmm. be true. Yeah, you know, based on the circumstances that they're in. John and uh, Joan uh, as well, both uh, Mr. and Mrs. Derbyfield, seem to like to make enough money during the week to have enough money to drink yeah. on the weekend. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's some interesting scene very early on where basically you – they you know, the, the, the parents are at the pub and they sort of dispatch in order the kids you know, to bring the parents mm-hmm. back. You know, yep. one of the one of the kid goes to try to get mom and dad back, but she falls asleep, so the next kid has to go, and I guess eventually Tess goes and, and drags them all back. So it's yeah. you know, both things can be true. There could be something systemic, and then also something uh, something personal as well, and then and how those things interact. Yeah, yeah, and and it doesn't transition though to. The children, like I feel like the children have a very different work ethic than their parents do. I mean, especially I think Tess originally wanted to be a mm-hmm. teacher, actually, mm-hmm. and knowing the importance of taking, I think, the beehives at the beginning, right, to into town, um, and her brother goes along with her. So I feel like they understand what it takes. And then you have the the dairy farmers that they're working really hard, and they're you know potentially barely scraping by. I know that it's it's not easy for them. And then you have the the Derbervilles who are she's petting her her pets. She knows them so well just by touch because I know that she's blind, and that's basically is that all she does? I don't know. There's a lazy person right there. I don't know what Alec does off the top of my head, but it's yeah, it's interesting to see sort of the spectrum of wealth and then <clears throat> how I guess the the effort going into it or um, the troubles also that that they're getting into. So it's probably I mean largely I think it's a critique on the on the upper class and then perhaps the middle class, the middle working class um, m- tending towards more empathy. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, the, I mean, the, 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 the fact that the D'Urbervilles are who they are, literally, then they stole the title. Yeah. They, they, they stole the name, yeah. and that actually seemed to have brought at least some land and a little bit of prosperity with it. Just, just because they picked up this—I don't know what he called it—a vacant name, or a, you know, it was a, it was a, a, a line that had died out. But yeah. there was evidently some land or some wealth or an estate that went with that, and sort of whoever could claim that, I guess, got it. Yep. <laughs> Very yeah. strange. Oh, and and uh, it's it's what's kind of interesting is, um, or maybe even ironic, is that she is. Or her parents are pushing her on some level to do something very similar. You know, this um, claim of a claim of, uh, of kinship to the Durbervilles. And, uh, you know, uh, there are a number of, of television episodes, movies, books that, that have these sort of imposter entering the world of the upper crust. Um, or the or the lower person were entering the world of the upper crust. I mean, you know, um, through whatever means there is, and so um, he's he's drawing upon that as well. You know, like like you said, nobody nobody in this novel, or very few people in this novel, save for like the dairy farmer, um, really does uh, does make it up. But I don't get the impression that the dairy farmer and his family are of want for anything beyond what they have. And maybe I misread that. Like with the with Tessa's parents, like we we're saying at the beginning of our discussion, they kind of push her into this because they see dollar signs in a sense. Mm-hmm. The dairy farmers, uh, they just seem to like want to make a living, you know, like they want to make a living. So, and, and I think that the Tessa's parents, as Alan put it really well, you know, you, you can have both in, in that, in that sort of um, system of oppression where, you know, there are things that you do to yourself that you're responsible for, but there does come a point where that this, the systemic oppression, you hit a ceiling, you know, and, um, and, and they seem to be very aware of that. Um, even if they're not aware of what they're doing to themselves and uh, want to see that, like, maybe she can, she can get above that ceiling by merit, getting into this family, you know, or whatever it is. So, um, and it kind of happens again with Angel's family as well. You know, it's like they're not there. I, I didn't get the impression that they were poor. I, th- I got the impression that they were pretty well off. And then it, again, it completely backfires on her too. Yeah. And it's interesting. One thing that the Reverend said to his son is that you'll probably have more worldly wealth. He was saying this to Angel, you will have more worldly wealth than either of your brothers mm-hmm. because I guess presumably they were taking a, a vow of maybe not necessarily poverty, but just going um, taking up a, a profession with the cloth wouldn't be lucrative. And I guess being a farmer would be more lucrative than that. So that's also something that's that was interesting to read. So uh, many editions of the book include this uh, subtitle: "A Pure Woman Faithfully Presented." faithfully presented um what do you think hardy was getting at with that commentary and do you agree um (laughs) i I think he i want to say he's being 
he's being sincere yet at the same time he's pointing out the irony in the phrase and that like you know she is she was very pure when she started and the and and just we saw her get just corrupted's not the right word it would be a word that would be used for this but she's definitely um yeah, tainted or whatever. You know, if I'm using if I'm using kind of the convention of the day, I think like tainted or corrupted would be that. And and maybe like you're saying, he's kind of showing how what is going on around her, like you know, is 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 ruining her in a sense. Um, so I don't, in a sense that I agree, and and I and I I think he's. Um, He's snickering at the idea, and that's why he's doing it. But maybe I'm reading a little too much into it. What about you, Alan? No, I, th- I, I think that's right. I, th- I think that was actually one of the controversial uh, uh, things was that was his use of the word pure. I mean, he is very specifically expanding that definition, um, as we said in the sort of the Victorian moral code. Um, you know, purity specifically uh, about a young woman uh, simply meant virginity and nothing else. Uh, but he's offering a much broader, different definition of pure. And I think his point is that she is pure start to finish in terms of the novel, uh, pure in heart, pure in spirit, uh, pure in love, you know, sort of despite what is going on around her uh, of, uh, you know, uh, things of her own making and, and things of other uh, other makings. And I think I think he's saying that that she's a victim of of the moral code of of her era. Yeah, and I guess there really wouldn't be any sympathy towards her. Which, when we get to capital punishment, mm-hmm. I mean that's that's another thing too. But just the fact that people are giving her side eyes. Um, I remember when she was engaged to Angel and they went to that town and Angel almost came to blows with some guy because he was looking at her or talking about her and other people look. So, though they didn't know the circumstances, obviously, but, oh, I guess this gets back to your slut-shaming that you had mentioned Mm -hmm. before, Tom. But just there's not much – there there was not much empathy towards um, those type of people, unfortunately, victims of, of sexual assault. Um, I'm sure she would have been blamed because of what was her name? The Queen of Aces or whatever, Spades. I can't remember what her name was um, because people kind of already knew that she was a pet mm-hmm. of Alec. Uh, I, I do like this subtitle. I, I think that, um, yeah, it would be hard for people to reconcile with. I, I'm also just thinking about this faithfully presented, that second part, and, and wonder if there's a dual meaning there. Faithfully, obviously, you know, trying to keep to the facts as much as possible. But I just wonder if, I mean, given the fact that it's, you know, full of faith, that sort of thing. I just wonder if there's a religious um, undertone to it as well, though. I I don't I'd have to think about it more to make some sort of uh, connection that's not fleeting and or explanation. So is this like in in the sense of. infidelity that she has and, and those actions is that the controversy of the time in the novel is it the way she's treated i mean what what how is this um you know we, we have a in a question we have up here we have a hardy once said that he refused to quote end a story happily merely to suit conventional ideas which kind of does 
help answer the question I had about, you know, tropes and convention, literary conventions at the time. Indeed, his novel took an unconventional moral stance and shocked readers upon its publication. So, Alan, you already you already sort started to touch on this. Did you want to kind of add to what you were saying earlier about the controversy that was that was the novel? Well, from what I understand, just things like the sexual assault, mm-hmm. uh, you know, those uh, uh, or or whatever that was, uh, was 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 controversial. And I, I just think the the way that there are people in the novel, characters in the novel, who shame Tess, but the novel itself does not. Um, Hardy does not, and I, and I think that's you know he's sort of standing athwart that. Do yeah. you think he's pointing out to general society that he's not shaming her, but they would? Mm. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, I mm-hmm. agree. I, I I I I think his his sympathy for the character is is uh, uh, different than than what readers may have expected. And I think just the fact that you've got these two men who have had dalliances, Alec, of course, more so than Angel, which, of course, is another connection between the two. Like, he's really putting that in the faces of people. Like, look how men are allowed to do this sort of thing. Yes, it might be frowned upon, but I feel like they're they're not slut-shamed at all. And then you have... Basically, in a, you know, a similar situation <clears throat> with Tess, and and she's confessing it to to Angel, and similar. I'm taking some leeway with that word, obviously, but uh, the fact that she forgives him for his youthful indiscretion that he does regret, and she is not forgiven at that point in time for something she had no control over. I think that probably would have also been really controversial, um, and it would have been. I feel like it would have inflamed readers. Like, oh my gosh, how could Angel not? forgive without people recognize like putting a mirror up to their faces of like i think thomas is probably doing that putting the mirror up to readers faces but maybe them not recognizing that they in fact in society have this double standard as well um i got a couple more questions left uh so getting back to alec and 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 the um and, and the the rape at the beginning, and then he comes back at the end. And he's been converted to Christianity, um, mainly by Angel's father. In different drafts of the story, he had Alex's conversion run the range of true and sincere to money making charlatan. What do you think of this conversion? Of this conversion is portrayed in this public published edition. Um, as much of a bastard as I think he is, I think he genuinely <laughs> felt that. I think the conversion for him was genuine in terms of his beliefs. Like, I don't think he was trying to grift anybody um, with his preaching and stuff in so much as, um, you know, that was pure. But at the same time, uh, it didn't fundamentally change him and he was still an awful person. Um, And we saw what, you know, and was on his way to continuing to do to test what he had been done to her. Um, So I don't know if Hardy's poking fun we're not even poking fun, criticizing, because poking fun is, is laugh, ha, ha. This isn't really that funny. Um, but he's criticizing, um, you know, 
religion's role in this in some way through that but um i would like to get you guys's take on that since you're you're both that's your both of you have more of an area of expertise as to my, my lapsed lutheran behind <laughs> yeah I, I i i mean we've talked about this a, a little bit already but i would say it was you know probably not a good idea for him to become a preacher right away <laughs> yeah no, this this quickly into his yeah, into his uh, conversion process. Uh, I think uh, Reverend Clara would have done better to have uh, discipled him for quite some time before uh, before he was uh, uh, sent out in, into the world uh, to preach himself. Training wheels. <laughs> yeah, he's almost like Paul, isn't he? Where he was, you know. Yeah. Um, it would be a radical conversion. Yeah. Yeah. It very much seems like that kind of thing where you've got this one lifestyle and then all of a sudden not. And so, yeah, but Paul, before he started his ministry, of course, went off and was alone uh, to prepare himself. So, yeah, I agree with you that he probably needed to not necessarily be alone, but I mean, he could have been, but also had some tutelage with uh, Reverend Claire. I don't think it makes sense for him to be a money-making charlatan, if only because shouldn't he have had a pretty sizable inheritance from his mother, unless he squandered it all. So that would just be a bit bizarre, because you'd have to follow his downfall of he lost all this money, which I guess Hardy could have squeezed in there, and, and that was the reason why. Um and it's clear that money doesn't mean as much to him as Tess does, given the fact, or at least the lust for Tess, given the fact that he had a commitment at some sort of fair and then blew it off in order to to be with her. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I feel like it's attempting to be sincere. Like he seems like he's got the fire under him of a first-time convert. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so he's really going at it, But but like Alan said, I think... Yeah, he needed uh, some time first and maybe not jump right up the ladder. Plotwise, it does set up him in that conversion um, and then his pursuit of her. Uh, it, it sets it up as the reader possibly having a little bit of hope that he has actually changed. So if he was a money-making charlatan, um, we and we saw that pretty much right away we would have much i think hardy would want us to have much more like outwardly just you know right there overtly disgusted by him um like oh he hasn't changed and then here it he he adds a little bit of nuance to it because he complicates matters because he's using he's using a supposed um you know a a, con a conversion you know, of, of being saved, so to speak, is not something that's taken very lightly. And it's also not something that's really seen as a negative thing. It's 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 redemption. Right. So we're like, oh, he's redeemed. And, you know, this may be and, and he's he's undermining that. So I, I do appreciate the kind of layering he does with that as opposed to just making him an outright grifter, you know. Yeah, I do feel like there are some red flags mm -hmm. for me. 
anyways because again he's not listening to Tess when she's saying no because she constantly she says no so many times and is like stay away from me and on on one side I can I can kind of see like him pursuing in order to find forgiveness like I think about an alcoholic and and once they leave or I guess as they're in Alcoholics Anonymous they you know they're supposed to atone for what they've done or apologize to anyone yeah so I can totally see that but great scott give her space and she again he's just not listening to her when she's saying no so for me that's a red flag that the alec that i knew at the beginning is still in there so it's it's just yeah um he's a he's a baby he's a baby christian i think and he still needs that milk well it's it's really dark and like i said he gets what he deserves at the end um, I'm <laughs> oh sorry. Gosh. Like I wanted this best oh, yeah, yeah. um, but setting aside our views of capital punishment in the real world, we end with her execution. I will tell you before we um, before we get to the like you know how we feel about it. As far as how that scene is written, I really liked it. I could. I, it was it, like I know that Hardy's writing before cinema existed in its modern sense, but I. It was a really cinematic scene to me, and I was like, "Oh, this is a really cool scene to end the to end the the um book on." Because the way he's describing, it, I can picture it exactly the, the the way it's lit, the way it's shot. I was like, you know, the, so that's when I say like the book is really really well written. Um, it's moments like that where I'm like, yeah, I could, I could see why you know Alan like you really really enjoyed this because it is it was really engaging. But how do we feel about Tessa's execution as a narrative point, and what is Hardy saying with this ending? Well, I will add, uh, Tom, that it actually really is a great way mm-hmm. to end a movie. <laughs> it's a great way to end a movie. Yeah, I can imagine. I just, I can just picture uh, it. It's, 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 it's yeah. uh, compelling. I mean, I think very mm-hmm. simple. Again, I love Tessa's reaction, um, her her submission uh, to the authorities. Um, her recognition of what of what has to follow based on what she's done, you know, justice has come. The actions have consequences. Oof, I do. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I do have a problem with the. Why well, any problems with the murder? But one of the problems is I don't know how Tess was able. Tom to has no problems with it whatsoever. Hey, you don't know yeah, how she know. was able to. Yeah, what? And I'm you sorry. love it, so I'm contrary. I don't know how Tess was able to overpower Alex. So I do have questions. I'm a bit dubious about the whole thing. Uh, that was probably the the rejection uh, at the honeymoon was one time that I threw the book out the building. This window, I guess, defenestration. This was another time that this happened because I thought, oh, my gosh, no. Why have you done this? <laughs> Why have you done this? I I do like it. Uh, so capital punishment, da-ba-da-ba-da. How do I feel about it? Her execution, I hate it. Are you kidding me? I hate it. I think it's awful. Uh, we could, you know, I mental health awareness was low, if not non-existent, if not non-existent, if non-existent at that point in time. So I guess I can't really say that 
anyone would give her the benefit of the doubt that, you know, look at all these things that had happened, nor had she confessed that he uh, raped her, that sort of thing. Um, plus, there was probably a statute of limitations on that act uh, at that point in time. So no one's going to go to bat for her. And I guess it'd be foolish for her to run, as they said in the little circle. Um, and it's just like, yeah, this is what's going to happen. So it was like one of the worst endings ever. And like I said, I think, you know, hour 20 ago, this is somewhat happy for Tess just because she has suffered for so long that at least she's able to have peace. But the fact that the peace comes at a death and this isn't like. Tale of Two Cities people, where this guy is sacrificing because of his love for a woman. Indeed, indeed. It's it's not at all that. I mean, I guess she's sacrificing because of her love for Angel and that, you know, finally he can be free. But, yeah, my gosh, they're together again. They're kind of on the same page. And and this whole thing happened. So this is the one moment where I feel like she was weak. And um, she snapped hard for me to say that because i feel like that's also just criticizing uh mental health issues but if if only she had held on for a bit you know said no to alec and and run after i feel like there's a what if marvel could potentially do with this (laughs) what was hardy saying with this ending um i suppose realism and that unfortunately uh, your morals uh can only get you so far and and uh, the the world is is hard it's a hard place and it'll strike you down even though you're trying to do the best you can and be the best person you can and death <laughs> is, is the end and it'll give you peace and freedom afterwards uh but try to stick to your moral obligations and maybe you'll be okay i don't know but i i hate it did i mention that i don't think you're saying this stuff but <laughs> But <laughs> Great, see, here we go. I don't I don't need a a happy ending to be a good ending. I I don't know if that's what you're saying. I don't think it is. But it can be a terrible ending for the characters yeah. and a great ending for the book. I and I can I, I do agree with you on that for sure. It's just with Tess with everything that she had gone through, mm-hmm. if there were anyone that did deserve a happy ending. Mm. I wish I wish it had been her. I had been I had been wishing them to get away, like I said. Um, and it's kind of funny that you mentioned that, Alan, because it's and I'm not I'm not accusing you of this because I, I, I do agree with you that you don't need a happy ending to have a good ending. But I think sometimes lately in our 21st century society, especially in more literary adult circles, we tend to think of happy endings as stupid. <laughs> You know, like there's a there's a real uh-huh. looking down the nose at a happy ending, like yeah, is, if you know what I mean. Yeah, uh, I'm certainly no, no. I know you're not saying, but that's kind of like one of those things I was thinking of. Um, uh, yeah. I still, as far as him over her overpowering him, I got. I don't think we actually see the murder. We just see the discovery of the body, and and the blood dripping. Yeah, and ceiling. my impression was that she killed him in his sleep. That's because ah, okay. he does scream. So I've, well, I felt like, did he not? He couldn't push. Um, I would imagine that she snuck up on him and uh, because my, I'm by no prizing it is basic. My no prizing it is basically that she, she attacked him in his sleep and, um, got enough, got in enough shots, or stabs or whatever, um, that even if he yelled out and tried to fight back, he was, he, he wasn't able to. So, um, I, 
you know, uh, there, there's something I, I think I see your your points there of what you were just making, Stella, about morals and stuff uh, in regard to the, the execution. I would add that it, there's a, um, a rebuke of this is what our society has done to people in, in the most drastic sort of way. You know, if, mm. if we're talking about this, um, you know, the way the way our society um, or English society at the time has made um, the middle class or the lower class covet what the upper class has to the point where they will go about and do this, um, you know, yeah, they're responsible for their actions, but it's also a little bit of him standing up and saying, you know, Jacques, you know, he's he's kind of indicting yeah. them for being partially responsible because of what they put forth and, and how they make people covet what they have because of the way they, they they tend to flaunt it. Any last words before I go into our last question of the discussion? Hmm. <laughs> All right. So uh, the last question we always have for discussion is, is this required reading? Alan? Well, here's the thing. I mean, I think not every book, not every piece of art is for everybody. But I think if you're someone with a heart, with a soul, with an ounce of compassion, then yes, this book is for you. (laughs) Okay, maybe I overstate. Stella, I I mean that was insane. I I I don't even know how to respond to that. If you've got compassion, you need to read Tess of the Durable. Let me tell you something. If I, sure compassion, okay. If you, I mean, it's going to try your empathy humanity. for sure. Humanity. What are you saying? Maybe just an ounce of humanity. Maybe, but I, you know, I would say if you've got any humanity, you know, avoid it so that you're not like down in the dumps for if you if you want some some novels that are get that you would like to test your try your humanity or compassion. I can recommend those that don't destroy people. Well, I guess they kind of do, but it's a, a good life lesson for all of us. This is not that. This is not that. I would say it's not required reading. I think that I would say go for Jane Eyre because Jane Eyre has similar – it is fraught with similar challenges. And uh, not everyone makes out okay, but for the most part, it's got a happy-ish ending. Um, And that's more of a – you're rewarded for your moral uprightness rather than the world will squash you for being morally upright, which is um, rather – rather disconcerting when reading tests um and i just i it's hard for me to recommend a book that you know a female character is just like pushed down 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 try as she might to get out of there um it's like reading batgirl um in the current age anyways uh yeah so for me that's that's a no but i will again say that it's beautifully written and it is really engaging but for me it's a no and much like the beginning of the, of the discussion, I'm going to come in the end and, and have sort of an in between here because I think if you are if you are um, if you enjoy 19th century books and you, if you're if you're like studying them in this sense, I think I would assign this if I was if it was like a, a 19th century English survey course. 
um, because of the way it is the way it looks at English society. I think the way it looks at English literature. Um, so it's, and, and because of, and also because of the way it's written, I think it's written really, really well in a general sense. I would, I would skip this because I don't, I don't think it necessarily is to kind of like the something more than just something specific, like, um, you know, like a course or something that I, I would, I would require it to be reading. So I'm, um, I'm in the middle once again. So. So, but what I am glad about is I'm glad that we did this because um, this was this was a lot of fun despite that it was uh, you know (laughs) in the in 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 late 2020 in 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 a year that's been uh, very very tough it's like let's read a novel about a person who gets constantly kicked down so it it's on (laughs) it's on brand with the year in which we read and recorded this. Well, I appreciate your kindness, your openness, your willingness, your hospitality. Now, I offered none of those to you. Uh, now, um, in a, we don't have any feedback uh, this episode. We'll we'll address uh, any that we get in next episode. So, as always, please make sure you send that to us, email, Facebook, etc. And before Stella uh, asks me to reveal what episode 51's book is, Alan, <laughs> why don't you reveal where everybody can find you out there? Okay. Uh, first off, I, I do want to just uh, nail down. Did we say for episode 100 we're going Mayor of Casterbridge or Jude the Obscure? Wow. One did we did we agree on which? Okay, you guys can get back to me on that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, again, thank you for uh, 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 for the welcome. I do appreciate it. Uh, most of our work in the podcasting field is comic book related and can be found at the relatively geeky podcast network. Uh, that feed inc- includes the show The Quarter Bin Podcast, or as I like to call it nowadays, that, you know, sort of cheap, relatively. It's not get too oh, you know, stuck on the details podcast because, mm, you know, mm, mm, you need to have an open mind about these things podcast. What's yeah. that, Stella? Oh my god. What's that? <laughs> huh? <laughs> You're such a liar! <laughs> Uh, I got about two hours oh, since the call God. before we got here, so. Uh, well, that feed also includes the Comics <laughs> Reading Journal and the show hosted by me and mm-hmm. M, Short Buck Showcase. And a few years back, we started a side project called Dorkness to Light, which is a blog and podcast all dedicated to the intersection of pop culture and Faith, uh, religion, spirituality, those sorts of things. It's a real – a particular interest of ours. And you know, I was thinking about the three of us getting together here in uh, – here at the end of at, – at, at the end of uh, 2020, and it's appropriate because in any other year around mm. this time, we'd be texting back and forth to figure out where in Charlottesville can we meet? On you know our 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 way back from visiting my family That's in North true. Carolina, which is not yeah. going to happen this year. So, so we usually get together around yeah, the start true. of the That's year. That's true. We did we did last year. I noticed that we'll miss that, but hopefully we'll see you at uh, in twenty twenty one sometime. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Again, thank you for the invitation. I do sincerely appreciate it. 
I even appreciate Stella. Mm. Yeah, it's your Is turn. Is it my turn yeah. now, Tom? Yeah, yeah. No, I was I trying. Was I'm trying to think of. Do I have to prompt you? <laughs> Tom doesn't cue me. He just doesn't talk, and then I figure that oh, it must be me. I'm sorry. It's a something. force of habit. I've been dealing with high school freshmen, and I ask a question, <laughs> and then I have to stare at the screen like I'm Dora the Explorer. <laughs> I bet, I bet. Okay, well, yeah, I can't hand raise on Zoom here. Tom, what are we going to do for episode Hmm. 51? Stella, you and I know teenagers, (laughs) right? We've dealt with teenagers. We've dealt with surly teenagers, pissy, disaffected teenagers. No, are we going to do the No, we're going to do the ultimate pissy affected disaffected teenagers stella reading the catcher in the rye yes, oh it. it's finally happening your favoritist book Ooh, it's in the top five my in the top spot right now it's fahrenheit but it, it, it okay. has for years it's okay. been in the top five um it's been it's been like a good decade since I last read it, so um, so we'll have to see where it is. But yeah, catch her in the ride uh, next time around. So until then, like I said, um, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, etc. And uh, as always, thank you very much for listening and take care. And if a parson meets you on the road, listen to any religious advice that he may give you, but do not listen to any personal or ancestral advice that he may give you, please. And to make another reference, if a partner meets you on your way to Canterbury, he's probably trying to get your money. But there's a whole other century and a whole other work of literature that maybe we'll get to in some part one day. Good night. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true freaks. That's two true freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to 2TrueFreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcast. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening and come back next month for our next episode.